The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The title of today's sermon is Confessing Jesus as the Christ. And our reading earlier from Romans 10 that we read together said, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now the Gospels exist towards the same end. All four of them are biographies of the historical life of Jesus Christ and what He has done so that we can be saved, so that we can have a relationship with God. But now we are 16 chapters into Matthew. And much about Jesus has already been revealed. His birth in chapter 1, its supernatural nature. Then all the way through chapter 3, his baptism. How God the Father audibly said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, Jesus alone, unlike everybody else who's ever lived, perfectly overcame Satan's temptation. Then chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus taught like no one has ever taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is the King who heals and saves unlike anybody who's ever lived or walked. Chapters 10 through 12, Jesus talks about true discipleship. Chapter 13, Jesus teaches parables about the kingdom. But now the gospel shifts in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now Jesus is doing miracles like he's been doing. But the focus lens is on the response of people. In fact, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus does some of his most famous miracles. He feeds thousands with a handful of resources on two separate occasions. He walks on water. He exercises demons. He causes the paralyzed to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And yet the focus of the lens is always, how will people then respond to what Jesus is doing? How will we respond to revelation? So I actually think here are the questions that Matthew would want us to answer this morning. Who gets it? (laughs) Like who really gets it in terms of who Jesus is as he's revealed? Okay, and then what prevents us from getting it? How does one get it? And why does it matter? So if you're a note taker, those are the four questions I believe that are behind today's passage. Who gets it? What prevents us from getting it? How does one get it? Why does it matter? So first, who gets it? And we'll see in verses 1 through 4 that some people demand of God what he's actually already given, but they just refuse to acknowledge. Look in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. Now if you know the Bible well, you've grown up studying the Bible, you would pause already. Wait, the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing something together? They hate each other. They're mortal enemies. When do they ever do anything together? Here's the answer. When they have a combined person, they both hate. And they both really hate Jesus. So people that can never agree on anything agree on this. We really don't like Jesus. So the Pharisees and Sadducees come together. That alone would really pop if you're reading the Bible. It's also interesting that they came, if you've been tracking Matthew very well, Jesus has just been in Gentile territory where the Canaanite woman was, and it's as soon as he gets back to Jewish territory, they're on him, 
ready, ready to pounce. Notice the verbs to describe how their approach is. They came, notice, to test him. This is not a sincere query. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. You also may not capture what's going on there. They've seen a lot of signs that Jesus has done. In fact, at the end of chapter 15, Jesus again fed thousands with just limited resources. But they want a sign from heaven, which is a Jewish way of saying something even bigger, something even grander, something beyond, something apocalyptic in its scale. Jesus, we want you to dance when we tell you to dance. So now, verse 2, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. We actually preserve this same meteorological observation today in the proverb, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Not the past time, not the future time. You can't see what's right in front of you right now. The sign of the times. What are the sign of the times? The work that Jesus is revealing in front of their very eyes that he is Messiah. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is God the Son come in human flesh to fulfill all the promises God has made. Wait, why are they able to interpret the weather, but they can't figure out who Jesus is? Why can they interpret the sky, but they can't interpret the signs of the times? Do you know why? Because they don't want to. You see, there are some things that we like, and there are some areas of truth that we find inconvenient. Did you know that humans are never neutral? We're never on the fence wondering how the evidence should lead us. We already have a stance towards what the evidence declares. That is why Jesus will not describe them in verse 4, an evil, notice their hard intention, an evil, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And don't miss, Jesus has given them ample signs. He's not saying any sign is wrong. He's given them many signs. John's gospel is actually built around seven different distinct signs Jesus does. He's not against doing signs. He's against people manipulatively refusing the ones he's given and refusing to acknowledge what's already been revealed. So he continues in verse 4. But no sign will be given to this kind of evil generation. Generation, by the way, is common in the Bible to talk not just about the people living at that time, but all people characterized by this posture. So all people who are evil in their hostility to revelation are given no sign except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? If you've been with us for a while, this has already happened. Actually, it's Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. The same thing happened. The Pharisees, the Sadducees came to Jesus demanding a sign again. Jesus told them, you're not going to get any sign other than the sign of Jonah. And he told them what the sign of Jonah was there in Matthew 12. He said, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Referring to his crucifixion. He wasn't, by the way, saying that Jonah died and rose from the dead. Of course, that isn't what happened. He was saying analogously, Jesus will actually literally die and be raised. He will have three days and three nights where 
He gives himself for others. Now, in that chapter, Matthew 12, Jesus said, if the people from Nineveh had as much revelation as you had, (laughs) one day they will rise up and condemn you. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she came from where she was all the way to where Solomon was to see the wisdom and glory of God. She will condemn you as well. See, the problem is not revelation. It's refusal to accept revelation. So notice the end of verse 4. So he left them and departed. And he's not just leaving geographically. He's leaving judicially. All right, so the first question we had, who gets it? So far, not the Pharisees or the Sadducees. But now the question that we need to think about regarding ourselves. What prevents people from getting it? And the answer is actually in Romans 1, verse 18, but it's illustrated for us here narratively. Romans 1, verse 18 says that the, well, verse 17 says that the attributes of God are clearly seen. His power, His Godhead, everyone knows who God is. Everyone knows what He is through creation. And yet verse 18 says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you've ever been in a pool and you're holding a beach ball and you work to push the beach ball under the water, you can feel your arms shaking because it takes effort to do. It takes effort to deny reality. Whatever system man may come up with, he still has to live in God's world. And here are the Pharisees refusing to accept the truth. Isn't it interesting that they can accept the weather patterns but not the Lord of the weather? We can handle weather reports we don't like someone who commands the weather. I'm reminded here of a quote Stephen Hawking gave in his book, A Brief History of Time. He wrote, A mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. And then Hawking concluded, So why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? See, he's happy to read the physics, but he doesn't want to think about the metaphysics. The problem we always have is not that it isn't clear. It's that we don't want to accept what is clear because we know what that means. That's why Romans 1 says it's not just that we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's a story. I hope it's apocryphal. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it before. The story is of a professor at a university. And the professor is an atheist, and he's trying to uh, debunk any Christians who might be in the class. And his goal is to embarrass them. And so he holds up a piece of chalk, and he says, anyone who believes in God is a fool. If God existed, he could stop this piece of chalk from dropping to the ground. But he won't, because he doesn't exist. And my illustration proves it. And so the professor dramatically holds up the chalk, drops the chalk, the chalk drops to the ground, and it breaks, and then he dramatically says, you see, there's no God, because if there was, he would have stopped the chalk. Which, of course, the chalk trick tells us nothing about God, other than that, if he does exist, he's not a circus animal who can be manipulated into doing stupid tricks given by foolish people. Today's passage is very similar. When they demand a sign from heaven, they're saying, dance. Do a trick for me. Do more for me than you've already done. God, if you get me out of this, if you do this, then. But in reality, everything that needs to be known has been revealed. Here is God in flesh in their face, and they refuse to accept. See, the problem is not that we don't get it. The problem is that we hate it. 
See, these people who are hostile to the truth will one day murder the person they despise. The true Jesus is the Jesus they can't accept. And that's how the sign of Jonah is actually given. Now, in the verses that follow, lest we be too critical for those who we might think of as outsiders, Jesus has sharp rebuke even for his disciples, even for you and me. So who gets it? So far, not those who refuse the clear revelation in front of them. But who else fails to get it? And in verses 5 through 12, we'll see that even Christ's followers can be very slow to recognize God's grace and very quick to forget God's goodness. Look in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, this is the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And this passage, by the way, is supposed to be humorous. <laughs> They'd forgotten to bring any bread. And if you know what happened at the end of chapter 15, if you just look in your Bible real quick, you probably even have a heading that says Jesus feeds the 4,000. This is a couple chapters after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Both times, that's just the men, so there were also women and children. Jesus has fed thousands and thousands of people with a handful of loaves and fish. And here the disciples are thinking, oh no, we're out of bread. <laughs> And in verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, while their mind is on food, his mind is on truth. He wants this moment to be a teachable moment, but they're thinking about food, and that's why they massively miss the metaphor in Jesus' teaching. In verse 6, Jesus is talking about the leaven metaphorically of an evil posture towards God, but they're still thinking about food. And so verse 7, they re- we read, And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. There's a Greek word called hati that is not translated by the ESV, but it means since or because. In other words, they're saying, oh, it's because we brought no bread that Jesus is talking about leaven. Of course, that's not at all what he's talking about. And so verse 8, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. If you remember my sermon from a couple weeks ago, you know that the only person Jesus says who has great faith is the Canaanite woman. When Jesus speaks about his disciples unequivocally, he describes their faith as little. Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread? Now, I want you to notice a very important lesson here. Notice Jesus is challenging their faith as a reason they're missing his teaching. Jesus is trying to use the moment to teach them truth And their lack of focus is actually a lack of faith. So now verses 9 through 11, notice fuel for our faith is remembering what God has done. Verse 9, do you not yet perceive? Notice, do you not remember? Do you not remember? How the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets you gathered? Do you remember how many baskets they had left over after that one? Twelve. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered then? That time they had seven left over. Some scholars think the 12 the first time shows that Jesus will care for Israel. The seven for the second time shows that Jesus will care for the whole world. Seven, a number of completion. That's possible. I don't know for sure. I think the main point here is, don't you know that I'm the bread of life who can easily provide all that you need? How quickly did you forget that? Verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? No, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is trying to teach them a lesson through his words, 
But they're not ready to be taught because they didn't pay attention to His works. God is at work in our life. But if we don't notice that, we may not also notice what He's trying to reveal to us through His work. These acts of grace are meant to lead to good guidance, which helps us understand what the leaven is. Leaven is a common metaphor in the Bible for evil. It's not always used that way, but it's often used that way. Verse 11, what is the evil then of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What is it that Jesus wants to make sure His disciples don't catch? And it's a rejection to revelation. A disinclination from God's revealed truth. No matter what Jesus reveals, it's never enough for the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be influenced by the same posture of rejection. See, even Christians can struggle with hard-heartedness, stubbornness, blindness, or forgetfulness. So if we stopped at the JRL, the Jewish religious leaders, and said, what prevents them from getting it? We need to stop here at the disciples. What prevents even those of us who are Christ followers from getting it? One answer is quickly forgetting. Do you remember what happened right after God parted the Red Sea and brought the Israelites through on dry ground and they got to the other side? Within days, what did they say? Can we go back into slavery? How quickly we forget the grace and goodness of God. Or how slow we are to recognize that God is at work. My favorite example of the Bible of slowness to realize what's happening is Samson and Delilah. Have you ever read that account and thought, at what point are you going to realize she wants to take away your power? I mean, how many times can the people rush in and say, oh, no, he still has his power. And he does it again and again and again. Because we, I, can be staggeringly slow to recognize what God is doing. And part of the reason we are slow to recognize is we are influenced by bad leaven. Bad leaven, a rejection of clear revelation, is all around us. Nearly everyone you know sees the glory of God in heaven, but refuses to acknowledge that creator. Nearly everyone you know in a country like America has more translations of the Bible available than most centuries or continents of people could ever dare to want and yet does almost nothing with the clear revelation that God has given. We have an embarrassment of riches and yet we are so poor at mining them and using them because we, you, me, we are being influenced by bad leaven. My favorite example of this from the Old Testament is when 12 men went to spy on Canaan. Do you remember the song? (laughs) Ten are bad and two are good. But who won the day when they came back to speak to the people? The ten bad ones. They were able to convince all of God's people, oh no, God can't do this. God can't do this. There's no way God can do this. And the whole people of Israel said, you're right. There's no way God can do this. We can't trust God. I mean, forget that he brought us this far. Surely he's not going to get us the rest of the way. And so for the next 40 years, they wandered till they died. But the two that believed, they made it in. Beware a bad leaven. Who gets it? What prevents us from getting it? But now the next question. Well, I want to get it. So how do I get it? How does one get it? And the answer is a little bit surprising. Look in verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say some think that you, the Son of Man, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist, as Herod did. Others say Elijah. Many Jews thought he did similar miracles. Others, Jeremiah, because of his lament over the evil. Or one of the prophets. Notice that the views of Jesus are all over the map. And by the way, they still are today. Verse 15, But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And the you is plural. He's talking to all of the disciples. Who do you disciples say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nails it. And this is the first time in Matthew that someone has called Jesus the Christ. He's been called the Son of David. He's been called the Son of the living God. But this is the first time he's called the Messiah, unambiguously. Peter gets his finger correctly on who Jesus is. But this brings us back to our question. How do we get it? How does one get it? Here's the answer, verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which could be translated in English, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you see the answer? How does one get it? And the answer is not by human discovery or merit, but by divine revelatory grace. Now here's the thing that almost all of humanity stumbles over. Wisdom is not achieved from the bottom up. Wisdom comes as a gift of grace from the top down. Wisdom is not accumulated through experience and tactile accomplishments or through the strength of human intellect. Wisdom does not come through empiricism. Wisdom does not come through rationalism. Wisdom comes through revelation. And because revelation is given by grace, it is actually our pride that keeps us from gaining wisdom through simply humbly recognizing what God has already revealed. Wisdom is not something we can be proud of because we've discovered it. Wisdom is something that humbles us because it's been disclosed. You see, Jesus has been revealing himself as God the Son, as Christ the Messiah, through miracles and signs that have been seen by many. And yet our hostility has caused us to refuse to accept what is actually right in front of us. Now, if you know the book of Proverbs, it's all about wisdom. And Proverbs uses all sorts of metaphors to communicate how wisdom is given. But my favorite is in chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom is personified as a woman. A woman crying out. But do you remember from Proverbs 1 where she's standing when she cries out? She's on top of the city gate. Do you know why? Because wisdom comes from the top down. Wisdom is revealed. Wisdom calls out. Wisdom is available. But in our pride, we think, no, wisdom can be earned. No, wisdom can be acquired. No, I can put that together on my own. And therefore, we miss what's actually right in front of us. It's amazing how we get it, but it explains why so few people do get it and what keeps us from getting it. Wisdom comes by revelatory grace. Now, verses 17 through 20 
Now Jesus focuses on Peter and what this means for Peter. And let me tell you honestly, be transparent with you. This is the part of the sermon that I've wrestled the most this week. How much should I get into this? Because <laughs> there's a lot of complexities that the church has argued over for a long time on this. And if I was teaching in a seminary, this might be the whole hour. But we're not in seminary this morning. Actually, there's a submarine behind me, so it'd really feel odd <laughs> to do that this morning. But here in verses 16 through 20, I want to give you the big picture. But if you maybe are from a denominational background where this is really confusing to you, please talk to me later. There are a lot of sections of notes I I decided not to put in this morning. Let me give you the big picture, though. Just to make sure we're tracking. By grace, through faith, Peter has truly spoken up about who Jesus is. So verse 16, by grace, through receiving revelation, Peter is correct Jesus is the son of the living God, the Messiah. So now notice verse 17. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Peter, you told me correctly who I am. Now let me tell you who you are. Verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now Jesus makes a promise, but don't miss. The promise is based on his grace at work through his revelation. Not through the merit of Peter, but through the grace of Jesus. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now your Bible may have a little footnote to try to explain what the word rock means in Greek. This is where some of the debate happens. It is the word Petra, which sounds a lot like Peter, but it's referring to Peter. Uh, for many years, there's been a debate, is it referring to his confession or is it referring to him? And to be honest with you, I think that's a false dilemma. I think it's talking about Peter who makes the right confession. I think they're both true. God will use Peter as a foundational pillar of the church that Jesus will build. But Peter will be used like any of the apostles will be used or any of the foundational elders. Peter's will, primacy will be chronological not based on his character, but based on the sequence of God's building of his church. So now verses 19 through 20, also perplexing verses. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples, notice this is an important phrase, to tell no one. Therefore, whatever the binding and the loosing is, has in it a proclamation of who Jesus is to tell no one that he was the Christ. So here's what I think verses 19 through 20 are saying. Peter, foundationally, chronologically, but eventually fellow elders, apostles, and all Christians will be the divine agents who are proclaiming the gospel of who Jesus is. And through that proclamation of who Jesus is, the kingdom's keys unlock the doors to those who receive the gospel in faith but the kingdom keys bar from entry those who reject Jesus as the Christ. Does that make sense? It's a lot going on in verses 19 through 20. So now let me make the big picture observation. Here's the heart of the debate here. Is Peter a normal Christian or is he a rabbi over the entire church? Is he a pope-like figure? So let's balance that for a second. Peter is without question a normal sinner who is capable of getting things wrong. And if you're not sure about that, wait till we get to the next few verses. But also, I don't want to downplay the fact that Peter is the first named disciple in Matthew. 
And he's also the first person to put his finger on the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Peter is a historical, real person like you and I, but as a believer, he was a very faithful one. And we should learn from much of what he did. But let Peter define himself to you. In 1 Peter 5, when he says, I'm a fellow elder. I also am under the under-shepherd as are all pastors. So recognize that Peter is not given a unique power to bind and loose because we know Jesus gives it to the church just in Matthew 18. And Peter does not have a unique right to proclaim because in Matthew 28, all disciples are told to go and make other disciples. So let's rejoice in Peter's faithfulness, but recognize that Peter, like all of us, is a sinner who needs help to respond rightly to Revelation. And to prove that, look down now with me in verses 21 through 23. Peter has a sense that Jesus is the Christ. But when Jesus explains what the Christ really will do, Peter disagrees. That's too much revelation. That can't be the right way. So now notice verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Jesus has previously told about his crucifixion and resurrection, but before he did so vaguely or indirectly. So this verse says from that time, because from here on out, he's very direct and clear. But now notice Peter's response to new revelation, revelation he didn't notice at least before. Verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, Peter's saying, Surely you're a Messiah who only conquers. You can't be a Messiah who would suffer. But now Jesus, verse 23, He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. So by the way, if you had a view that Peter was an infallible pope, I don't know how you explain this verse. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wait, here we are on a Sunday in a church in America. All of us have heard the gospel story. A lot of us are familiar with the cross. But see, he's not asking who understands and who's heard this concept. He's asking who actually gets it. And at the core level, no one gets it. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, none of his followers will still be there. In fact, everyone will assume that Jesus failed. That the thing that is his climactic act is actually something that's sort of sad and pathetic. The Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Romans and the Jewish religious leaders both agree that Jesus must have been a failure which is why in Matthew 27, they were both crying out, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Verse 41 says the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Is it not true that in our country, if we want to buy a self-help book for our business or for our industry, we want to make sure that the back cover of the book tells us how successful that person was in business? If we're going to buy a documentary or there's going to be money put behind one, well, then it better be someone that really succeeded in their field. It better be someone who was the best. Even today, we still struggle with a son of God Messiah figure whose climactic act is death. But in reality, Jesus' climactic act is 
his death. The cross is the climax, and the victory does come through his willful death in our place. So notice now why it all matters. And I want to give you three big reminders. Why should we get it? Why should we receive Jesus as the Christ, confess with our mouth that he is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead? And here's the first reason, because the cross is the only means of salvation. Colossians 2.14 tells us this, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Jesus set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you know this morning that you are seen by a perfectly holy and just God? He knows everything you are, everything you've thought, everything you've desired, everything you've done, and He sees it all with crystal clarity. And he sees it knowing that we are sinners and there is nothing you could ever do on your own to tip the scales in your favor. But every piece of debt against you, Jesus took in his body and nailed it to the cross and permanently removed it. See, the place of death is the place of life for those who receive Christ. Isn't it interesting in communion what Jesus tells us to remember? We're to remember what until he comes. His death. See, the exact area where the Romans and the Jews thought Jesus failed is the area where we as Christians know Jesus won. (laughs) Jesus bore our sins in his body. But before we rejoice in what Jesus did for us, we have to realize that it's something we did to him. It is our sin that nailed him to the cross. It is our failure that crushed him under the Father's hand. It is our evil that caused him to be slain. But that is why the cross is the heart of Christ's church. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let me ask you the big question from this morning's text. Do you get it? I'm not asking if you've heard of it. I'm asking if it's transformed your life. Do you know why I'm asking that? Look in verse 24. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the cross is not only what Jesus did so that we could be saved. The cross is the character of anyone who follows him. Anyone who knows Christ has to be willing to have that same death to anything I would be otherwise and the life to Christ and Christ alone. My favorite picture of this was written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my life, my all. Let's go to Christ in prayer. God, by your grace, 
enable us to confess Jesus as the Christ. But then, Lord, if we are able by your grace to simply recognize revelation as it's given to us in your goodness in the Bible, then, Lord, guard us as Christians who are so prone to wander and quick to forget. Lord, maybe we would do well this afternoon to remind each other all the good things God's been doing in our life. Because I know for me, God, and I'm embarrassed to admit it out loud, but how many times I face a problem and then I have tunnel vision and focus on the present. Oh no, we don't have bread. And I forget that I have the bread of life. And I forget what he just did last year (laughs) to answer something that seemed unanswerable, to move something that seemed immovable. Many times, Lord, you have demonstrably, graciously worked in my life, and yet many times I have faced a new crisis with unnecessary concern. Lord, help me to remember that the cross reveals God's holiness, that I am more wicked than I would ever want to admit, but it also reveals God's gracious love that God is for me and therefore who can stand against me? And he who did not spare his own son, how could I not also graciously trust him to provide all good things? So Lord, this morning, help someone here this morning who maybe has yet to move their trust to Jesus to do so in faith in light of who he is. But help us who know him to live by faith and to wonder always at the cross, that place that you made us yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.